This episode is brought to you by Paraswap, the leading aggregator to find best prices across various DEXs. You'll hear more about them later in the show. Hey everyone, quick reminder, nothing said on Empire is a recommendation to buy or sell securities or tokens. This podcast is for informational purposes only and any views expressed by anyone on the show are solely our opinions, not financial advice. Santiago and I and our guests may hold positions in the companies, funds, or projects discussed. Now, let's get into the show. All right, everyone. We're going one-on-one with Charles Cascarilla, the CEO and co-founder of Paxos. Charles, hopefully I pronounced your last name right. Uh, Paxos is one of the most important companies in crypto that has just been quietly building for the last several years and is actually the backbone of a lot of different products, maybe that aren't as uh, forward-facing, but kind of sit behind a lot of other products in crypto. So uh, we're going to talk markets, we're going to talk stable coins, we're going to talk about what Paxos is doing. But before all that, Charles, welcome to the show, my friend. Oh, great to be on. Uh, I definitely agree with you. We've spent a lot of time building in the background here, and um, it's really starting to pay off. A lot of people are coming into the ecosystem, and we're, we're helping to power them, which is exciting for us and I think for everybody. Yeah, awesome, man. All right, so here's what I want to get into first is actually just the markets. Uh, I remember this March of 2020 uh, interview you did. I think it was March, maybe February, maybe April with uh, Patrick O'Shaughnessy on Invest Like the Best. And you, you you kind of laid out the macro landscape and you said the most likely route that was going to be taken by the Fed is that they just couldn't stop printing is how you put it. And helicopter money would become really, really difficult to control and rein in. And sure enough, uh, you were right, right? And the market completely ripped. Uh, and now actually two years later, where we're sitting at is things aren't all fun and games anymore, right? The market kind of peaked out. Uh, it was peak kind of just narrative uh, and, and excitement. And what ended up happening is uh, that inflation print ended up coming in above 8%, and it kept coming in above 8%. The Fed started kind of spooking the markets, said they were going to hike interest rates. Uh, and now what's happened is things have colossally turned around. NASDAQ's down like 30%, S&P down like 15 20%. Global debt to GDP is sitting at like 350%. Uh, Snapchat just fell 40% in one day. Uh, inflation's still at like 8%. So I just wanted to ask you, how the hell did we get here? What has happened over the last couple of years in your mind? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I wish it was only the last two years that got us here. Uh, it would be a lot easier to solve. Uh, but really, this kind of goes all the way back to, you know, 1998 and the Asian financial crisis, believe it or not, because, well, you know, we had, we, or even maybe 1995, you had this big tech boom that first started and productivity was going up and we cut interest rates and we kept cutting interest rates into Y2K and through the Asian crisis and you blew a giant bubble and it popped. And to solve that bubble, we cut interest rates to zero and then we blew a subprime and housing bubble and then that blew up. And um, each time, instead of basically taking the medicine, so to speak, of let's clear the decks, we cut interest rates and incentivize debt growth. And so really since 1995, I think there's only been one or two years where debt has not grown faster than the economy. That is obviously an unsustainable pattern. You know, you can't have debt grow faster in the economy forever. And it forced us to keep cutting interest rates to incentivize more debt. Because if you think about what debt is, debt is money you can, uh, something you consume today and you're going to pay back tomorrow. Um, and, uh, you know, you keep incentivizing that and you get to a point where, you know, you, you really have um, societal wide problems. And I think now um, we probably have told ourselves the biggest lies, uh, lies almost in the history of the world. Uh, at least from a financial perspective, uh, the idea that we're going to be able to pay back um, 
uh, whatever the number is now, must be $300 trillion or something a little less of global debt, uh, 350% debt to GDP or something in that range, and all the major economies. The idea that we're going to be able to pay our $60 trillion of unfunded liabilities on Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, uh, when you add all that up, it's, it's completely impossible. So we're just lying to ourselves. And the way we've avoided having to come to terms with that lie is by having interest rates keep going lower and lower and, um, and then eventually keep printing money. And the pandemic um, was a situation where it allowed us to um, print a lot of money and have big budget deficits because, you know, we all wanted to get through the pandemic together. Uh, but it was actually just continuing to cover up this fundamental imbalance. And um, uh, it's just this pattern of now what do you do? Because at least before you didn't have inflation, so you cut interest rates and you were printing money. There was no inflation, so you, there wasn't a hard trade-off. And inflation is in some sense the reckoning moment for what is happening. And it really becomes unclear here. We haven't had a situation like this in a very long time or maybe uh, really ever in some sense with this size of these unfunded liabilities and debts. So I wish we had like a great answer to it. I have always believed that crypto and blockchain was the way out of this uh, situation for us because you're going to need a new financial system, a new financial system that would be able to keep up with the new economy and operate at the speed of the internet. So that's one reason you need a new financial system. But the second reason you need a new financial system is because the contradictions within the old financial system uh, have become so unbalanced that they're not going to be able to hold. And um, and we don't know exactly how that will unfold. There's a couple scenarios that are possible. So you have eight and a half percent inflation right now. Maybe that's just you know a couple of supply shocks and some you know uh, just a, a point in time inflation problem. That's a possibility. In which case, what will happen is the federal hike rates to I don't know maybe two percent or. Supposedly, the market says 3%, and um, that will slow things down, and inflation will come down, and the economy will keep growing, and you like come back into like some kind of Goldilocks. That's, you know, that's, that's, um, that's would be the, you know, kind of the hopeful scenario. That's possible. Maybe we'll be able to continue on, and uh, that would be great. The other um, possibility is that the Fed continues to hike, and asset prices, which have already been coming down now, I guess. Um, uh, we're almost at a bear market here. Um, it have been coming down, so maybe 20% of their highs in the in the stock market. Private valuations are down more, and real estate maybe should start coming down. Um, well, then you could have us go into a recession, maybe a pretty deep recession, and then I think you know the Fed would cut interest rates to zero again and print money, and you know maybe inflation would come back again. And we'll have some hard choices, or um, uh, you know we kind of just decide to live with above average inflation for quite a period of time. Um, and it just, we don't actually pull that under control. Those are the really the three scenarios. I don't know which one we really choose, um, but if you looked at asset prices, and this is pretty interesting, right now, um, asset prices to disposable income is at 850%. Um, so a, comp a country, uh, um, countrywide, you know, for the entire United States, which, and the average level is about 450%. So that tells you how much mm -hmm. asset prices are above normal. Now you could look at 10 or 20 different statistics. Price to sales, price to earnings, price to book, you know, house the prices to income. Everything is at epic uh, levels. You're basically a 99th percentile in almost every asset class, bonds, 
So you have a long way to fall in asset prices if the Fed really kept hiking rates. And so you could really you know, have some unusual situations that go on here. And that'll, of course, maybe even affect the crypto market and the blockchain market. But I, I don't think that's something, you know, I think that's something we should all be aware of. Um, you can't control these things, but you need to be prepared for them. But what are, you know, there's also this uh, concept of, you know, going through these very um, hard cycles in crypto, but it's all part of what is a very big secular shift that this type of uh, possible discontinuity would actually accelerate. So that's kind of the paradox of the thing. There's there are three periods I keep hearing this compared to. One is the in mid 1970s, right? So post World War II, you have this absolute boom for 30 years. Uh, 19 what 73 to 75, you get the recession that kind of was like marked the end of the expansionary period post World War II. The other period is maybe the dot com crash. Uh, exuberance was at an all time high. You had these companies going public that didn't even really have a product, and it was just based on like page view clicks and things like that. Uh, and then there's obviously 2008, 2009. Do you think any of those three periods are a fair comparison to what we're seeing right now? Well, you know, I, what the Mark Twain saying it, uh, you know, history rhymes; it doesn't repeat itself. I think um, there's analogies to many of those. Um, you know, it might look a little bit more like the '70s, only because I think you're having a real regime change, and I'm not sure that uh, that uh, 2000 or 2008 really um, fully represented a regime change. Each one, you know, was like a pretty big shift. Um, but you have something very unusual going on, which is you don't just have a bubble in one asset class, you have almost an everything bubble. And you don't uh, just have it in, you don't have these debt levels just in the US, you have them globally. And so you, you're really at a very precarious place because of that. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we can't kick the can for another 10 years. I mean, you, it's always surprising uh, how far uh, things can keep going. Uh, but it's like a rubber band and the, you know, it could, you could pull it maybe longer than you think, eventually it's gonna snap. Is this the time when it's gonna snap? It might. And if it does, I think this would be, it would represent something that's much more difficult uh, than any one of those prior times um, because you have misallocated capital on a scale of the economy far larger than any of those times uh, as a percentage of GDP or however you want to look at it. And, and you're also doing it in a synchronous way outside of the U.S. as well. It's not like China or Japan or Australia or Europe or Canada look better. They actually look worse. So, you know, and, and it's not like, oh, well, it's just the U.S. problem. To be honest with you, not at all. I think it, it, the U.S. is in a fundamentally better position than, than most of these countries. Uh, of course, it just depends on the exact metric you want to use. Yeah. How do you think about investing in this period, right? Because for the last two years, since March of 2020, since you had that podcast on Invest Like the Best, anything you touch turned to gold, trading cards, rare cars, crypto. Yeah. Uh, equities, right? It was kind of like the farther you pushed out on the risk spectrum, the better you did. Now the farthest out on the risk spectrum is getting absolutely hammered, right? Uh, but there's, it, for me at least, it feels like there's nowhere really to turn. Uh, there's there's no good place in the market. How do you think about investing? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a difficult environment because when you have an everything bubble, that means, you know, really what you're talking about is relative choices uh, between what is going to go up and what's going to go down. And also, you know, to the extent that you now have interest uh, rates up, you know, people can go to cash. Um, cash isn't trash at the moment. It cash is yielding you 75 basis points risk free. And it's funny that like in an inflationary in period, cash is actually maybe the best thing to be holding. <laughs> well, because, you know, it's, you know, I know, isn't that weird? Like you got eight and a half percent interest, uh, sorry, inflation, and you're only earning 75 basis points of interest. But if everything goes down 10 or 20%, right. then, you know, your positive 75 basis points 
uh, is better because right. it's all about relative prices right now. And so if you thought you're in a period where prices of most assets will go down on an absolute basis, uh, and certainly on a, even a relative basis, it's just going to be which one is going to go down the least. And in that case, cash would go down the least. Um, you know, and so, but there are certain assets, like if you looked at um, gold as an example, um, it really hasn't moved all that much, um, you know, and so you could say, oh, maybe that's a, a place to hide out. Um, you could even make an argument that, oh, well, you should go own the long bond because if asset prices are going to go down, uh, the Fed will, the economy will go down and the Fed's going to have to cut rates and bonds will rally. So you could maybe go find some certain things to um, to go put yourself in. But, um, you know, I think right now the, the benefit is optionality. So we don't know what the world's going to be. So what do you do? You try to stay closer to home. Closer to home mm -hmm. is being able to have the ability to take advantage of dislocations. And what can dislocations look like? It can look like asset price falls in different at different places. So what does that mean? I mean, it means sell some winners. It means hold some cash. It means um, potentially hold some bonds. But hold things that are liquid uh, so that you can also reallocate as things move around. So basically try to have optionality, which means staying liquid and um, uh, having dry powder. I, I, that's the best advice I would give. Now, for every single person, that's just going to be different depending on where they're at in their life and what their risk tolerance is. Right, right. How do you view Bitcoin right now? Um, because it's gone. Bitcoin's gone through this changing narrative. I, I, you know, every couple of years in crypto or in Bitcoin or whatever you want to say, there's a new narrative, right? It used to be digital payments and then it was digital gold and then it was this inflation hedged asset. And then you started having corporates and nation states putting Bitcoin on their balance sheet, right? There's always every 18 to 24 months, there's this new Bitcoin narrative. And it feels like a lot of those narratives might have fizzled out, at least in the short term right now. So what is your just view on how you're seeing Bitcoin? Uh, I think both the asset, but Bitcoin, the network. How, how do you yeah. view both of those today? Well, I mean, I think there's, I think that is a very insightful point. Um, I think that there could be a couple narratives that could emerge here. Um, one is uh, Bitcoin as a reserve asset. So I know there's Bitcoin as, um, say, digital gold or something, but Bitcoin, Bitcoin is a reserve asset, which would underpin um, uh, the financial system as the kind of uh, settlement um, that is not controlled by anybody, any, any, any sovereign. And uh, the, po the possibility that is starting to happen because you've now seen um, the dollar be more and more used um, as a uh, financial weapon. Uh, and I think all for good reasons in many cases. Uh, but, you know, the benefit of having the reserve currency, uh, but also the requirement is that everyone should be able to use it. And if everyone can't use it, then it's not the reserve currency anymore. And so to the extent that people become afraid that you can't use the dollar um, as at any time, um, that means they're afraid that you're going to be defaulted. Basically, like if you take somebody's money, that's a, the default. They, they can't have a claim on you. And, um, and so that is going to force people to think about other ways to be able to transact. Um, I'm not saying that's good or bad. It's just, I think, a reality. So I think this concept of Bitcoin as a reserve asset could gain steam um, as an unfortunate byproduct of, of the war in Ukraine and um, the, a lot of the different um, ways we've exerted pressure using our currency. Um, and and just so I make sure, Charles, just so I make sure I understand that thesis, is that 
Bitcoin as a reserve, so something like petrodollars, right? Something like settling, like nation states settling debts with each other. Those debts would get, are we talking at the nation state level? Like those debts would get settled in Bitcoin? Are we talking about people sending money between each other? Like what does what the settlement layer of the world really mean? Well, I think that that's definitely what I was uh, talking about here is that it could be a reserve asset, um, you know, kind of like uh, IMF drawing rights in some sense, right? It'd be an ability for nation states to use a non-sovereign, universally accepted uh, settlement mechanism. Um, I don't know if that'll happen, but I think that there's... I, I could see that now coming into focus, whereas maybe before that seemed a little far-fetched or far out. Um, I don't think Bitcoin's ready for that yet, but that would be one example um, of a narrative that could begin to emerge. There's another narrative that I think is really starting to gain steam, in the case of Bitcoin at least, is around the Layer 2 access to it. Um, Lightning Labs, uh, a lot of the Lightning Network layers that um, have uh, been put into place is creating an ability for Bitcoin to be used as a payment mechanism. And potentially some of the smart contracting layers, whether it's Stacks or you know, others um, where you could now be able to even have smart contracting anchored into Bitcoin. I think that is um, a much different narrative than it has existed in the mm -hmm. past. The reason I think that's very powerful is um, there is so much uncertainty with the other um, payment me uh, mechanisms, uh, either L1s or L2s that have been put into place. Um, and uh, either because they're... Um, yeah, continuing to get clogged up or the technology isn't quite ready yet. And I'm not sure it is necessarily in Bitcoin either. In fact, I know it's not, but it could be. Uh, but yeah, I think those are really powerful stories um, because I think there's an elegance to the Bitcoin as a layer one that is very secure, widely used settlement layer, and that you're anchoring that into your financial system that is used for payments and is used for smart contracting. Is it there yet? No, but um, the other ones aren't there yet either. And there's actually a lot of flaws in all of them. And I think that could be the most likely way to go. If you, if you look at an analogy of the current financial system, you have an L1, which would be, say, the Federal Reserve. You have L2s, which is Visa, MasterCard, ACH. Um, L3s are some of the banks. You know, L4s could be exchanges or however you want to like exactly uh, denote each one of those levels. But that'd be more or less like Bitcoin being an L1. Uh, you know, Lightning um, or maybe some other companies could be L2s. Uh, you can then add in L3s and L4s. And it, it's built on top of what I think is a thermodynamically sound mechanism to be able to, and a, a, I think, most widely accepted asset in the world, which is Bitcoin. Um, so I could see that also emerging as a narrative. Again, we're not there yet. But so if those are the two narratives that I think could um, start to um come to play in in the Bitcoin world, certainly over the next 12 to 18 months. Yeah, it does feel like DeFi on Bitcoin is one of the most contrarian investments you could make as a crypto investor, um, but something that could play out. Uh, depend, I think it, a lot of it depends on how deep into the bear we go, um, which I think, which maybe is, I'd turn that into a question for you, right? Bitcoin, since 2009, uh, since this entire industry was created, has only operated in a, a global macro bull market. I'd call it, right? How does Bitcoin and just actually the, zooming out the, the entire crypto industry, how, how do we do in a maybe global macro bear market here? Well, um, there's a, it's, a, it's interesting uh, to, to think about that for a couple of reasons. Um, well, the, the first is 
Um, I do agree with you. It's very contrarian to imagine that you can end up with a smart contracting layer on Bitcoin, partly because it doesn't really exist at the moment. But people are working on it and are, or doesn't exist in a way that has scaled. Um, on the other hand, uh, I think there are fundamental contradictions in all of these systems that have been brought to bear. And I also think that um, those contradictions um, in part are going to face regulatory issues. And so I think that's a, um, an interesting uh, aspect here that we still haven't come to bear with is that there could be regulatory reasons why this is not effective. Could most institutions today decide to use something aside from Bitcoin um, as a smart contracting layer to move assets around? I, I wonder uh, because of the, um, the lack of regulatory clarity or and potential regulatory issues around being a security in some of these L1s. But so let's just set all that aside for a second as one reason why Bitcoin um, creates a lot of, um, uh, let's, uh, let's call it surety from a regulatory standpoint, even though it might not have it necessarily at the moment from a technology standpoint um, and on, on a relative basis, though nobody really does. Um, the you know, and then I think you could look at this bear market that we have started to enter and we'll see how long it lasts for. These crypto winners tend to be, um, you know, pretty, um, uh, pretty uh, deep. You know, they've generally been down 80 to 90 percent. And um, and that's on Bitcoin. It ends up being worse for everything else. Um, so you could imagine, I don't know if that's what will happen here because we've gotten to such a level of maturity and adoption that that might not be how far down it goes this time. Uh, but again, nobody really knows the answer to that. But non-Bitcoin related activity goes down more. And that tends to be because they're smaller communities. They tend to be more speculative. Um, I think that uh, that means that uh, there is just less resilience about how those communities act when they go down. A lot of what's gone on in these different areas has been around building community, but sometimes that community, and I'd say maybe in many cases, that community has been uh, driven by um, uh, price appreciation, right? Like, hey, we're all, like everyone's at the craps table together and there's nothing more fun than you're at the craps table and everybody's winning uh, because you're all winning together. It's not like blackjack where you go to the blackjack table and one person wins, the next person loses. Like, it's just kind of like a singular sport. Um, but, you know, this has kind of been like a, like a, a large example of everyone being at the craps table together. Now that it is doing a disservice to a lot of the fundamental community and innovation that's been built in many places, but there is certainly elements of that. And we've seen some examples of that uh, in the last couple of weeks even, uh, and uh, with the Terra and UST, un unfortunately. And so I think that um, it's hard to tell what will happen in this bear market, who will end up not being able to make it where you have to prove your business through a business cycle. That's the whole point. Like it's not a business model if it only works when assets go up and prices go up. The whole point is a, a business model works through the cycle and has to add value to the cycle. It's, you know, if you can't work in the downside, uh, that's not working. Um, that's just pretending really because the there's going to be uh, bad case scenarios. There's going to be tough times. There always are. You can't live like there isn't, um, just, even though we've gone long periods of time now without having to uh, to have that happen on a broader basis, at least. And I also think that, um, you know, the fundamentals 
of what crypto and blockchain represent are not going to be invalidated by a bear market. My suspicion is that bear market will actually be validation even more. It will be a winnowing process of bad ideas and business models that don't work. But it's not because the entire concept doesn't work. It's just that some don't. And yeah. uh, But fundamentally, the shift of the entire financial system needing to change because the current one isn't working, doesn't fit with where the new economy is going, doesn't fit with an internet-based economy, you know, the, basically the financial system right now moves at the speed of the post office. It's two-day settlement. Maybe it's five days, maybe it's one day, but that's what it is. Why is that the case when all you're moving is electronic information around, more or less? Yeah. And I could tell you lots of reasons why, but it doesn't make any sense. And so that, that is the fundamental problem. And guess what? That isn't going to get solved by anything except for crypto and blockchain. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear you loud and clear. I do want to talk about that. And I also want to talk about the second order implications of what happens when settlement is more in real time. But one thing before we get into that is, let me lay out two scenarios to you. And I want to see which one you think is more likely. Scenario A is we go into this long, prolonged bear market. It feels like 2018, 2019, maybe it's even worse. The reason being global macro is just in the shitter and like everything is falling apart around us. The other yeah. option is the bear market's actually not that bad. Reason being A, there's a massive amount of permanent capital in the industry with on the venture side of things, right? Andreessen just raised a four and a half billion dollar fund for, all right? There, yeah. I think there's $32 billion of crypto VC raised last year. So there's a massive amount of permanent capital sitting on the sidelines. Um, and there's also, unlike 2017, there are buyers of last resort, right? At a, there are buyers of when some of these prices go down, whether it's Coinbase in the public markets or Aave or Uniswap, some of these tier one DeFi protocols are down a lot, right? There is a buyer in the public markets for them, unlike in 2017. Which one seems more likely to you? My guess is it's the latter, um, but and because I do think that the fundamentals here the fundamental secular trend is is much more clear and is so positive. So you're just you continue to compound basically is another way to think about it. So say the world goes down minus 80 or 90 percent, but you're continuing to grow 20 percent a year through that. You might go down, too, but you're just not going to be able to go down as much uh, because that compounding is going to overwhelm whatever the decline is. Um, so that's what my assumption is. But, you know, it's always hard to tell what the second order and third order effects will be. Um, as you start to get more price declines because there's leverage in the system. There are business models that are built on transaction volumes. Um, there's been a lot of overexpansion. And so you just can't always tell um, how it's going to happen. You know, the Warren Buffett saying you can't tell who's naked until the tide goes out um, is always going to be true because you get second order and third order effects. And so, you know, for instance, Luna and Terra uh, go down and that's $40 billion or so that's lost to uh, outside people from aside from the Luna Foundation. Um, so $40 billion is lost. Um, is that going to create second order and third order effects that we don't know? Could there be some lending firms that maybe fail? Could there be some trading firms that, you know, are over levered? Maybe. Um, would that force more liquidations and that would, you know, kind of you know, um, expose more over leveraged business models or, um, you know, in a, inappropriately capitalized business models. Sure. Um, but my, and, and it certainly, if you have a, just a total decline across all the rest of the economy, that could happen too. So you, you always got to be careful that you don't know when you're in the tail and you're describing a tail event, when you're in the tail, a small move in the tail is a large move on the axis. 
And that's why they're so impossible to, and you don't have a lot of data points. So they're very hard to model. And, you know, they, uh, they really can create some unusual side effects um, that you just can't fully understand right now. So you need to be, you know, that's what I was getting into before, which is you got to have optionality. You got to plan for this. You can see uh, venture funds from Sequoia to Y Combinator uh, to others putting out a lot of warnings to all their companies saying, look, life's going to go on. But life goes on for those you know, who are prepared uh, for life to go on. You can't just assume it's going to continue to stay the way it was. You know, things change and you got to react to it. And so you, know, you need to be prepared for a long bear market. But, um, you know, it doesn't mean that it's what's going to happen. Yeah. All right, everyone. Quick break from the show to share a big update from our friends at Paraswap, the best platform to stake, swap, trade, farm and more. Paraswap just launched gas refunds. Based on how much you stake, you can now get up to 100% of your gas refunded on all of your swaps on Paraswap. This is huge for anyone who has spent a lot of time in DeFi or maybe it's just starting out, you know how egregiously expensive the gas transactions can get. The gas fees are ridiculous at some points in time, and now you can get those entirely refunded on Paraswap. To participate, all you need to do is stake a minimum of 500 PSP. Big shout out to the Paraswap DAO for making these refunds possible. Really, it's just, it's tough to beat Paraswap right now. They give you the best prices. Uh, they save you money. You've got this gas refund if you stake PSP. They've got a smooth and really user-friendly interface, fast swapping. It's really everything that you'd want from a DeFi platform. If you don't use them already, check out Paraswap today at paraswap.io. Now let's get back to the show. Let's talk stablecoins for a second. Um, because you mentioned Terra, I don't actually want to get into Terra and UST because I, I feel like it's actually kind of overplayed at this point. But I do want to get your take on something that Jim Bianco uh, said on the podcast maybe a couple months ago, which is um, at a certain point, the Fed steps in um, for stable coins or somebody steps in and they don't let this get too big. Right. And um, I think his number, if I remember correctly, was something around one trillion um, maybe we're at around 100 billion today. So maybe the Fed or the, I don't know, whoever it is, the government, the regulators could let stable coins grow by another 10x and then really step in. Uh, and because of that, his thesis was that you actually need decentralized tokens or decentralized stable coins to further grow DeFi. Um, mm. now, that, he, now, he made that thesis before everything played out with UST and Terra. Um, but I just want to get your take on kind of that statement, but also just where you see the stablecoin space and CBDCs and centralized stablecoins and you're, you guys have a stablecoin and, and decentralized stablecoins. Like how do you view the landscape now that you've had a couple of weeks to maybe reflect on what just happened with the algo stablecoins? Yeah. Uh, so we have uh, $20 billion of stablecoins, a little bit less uh, between our, uh, our USDP token and BUSD token, both of which we run. And they're regulated tokens. And I'll, I'll describe our tokens in a moment. Um, I do think that... Um, it's important to, to define stablecoins because I, I, there's so many different ways of creating stablecoins. They're not all the same thing. So really, to me, a stablecoin is you took an asset and you tokenized it. It used to be on a centralized database, and now you put it into a decentralized database. It's still the asset. So is that asset a gold bar? Is that asset an equity? Is that asset a 30-year bond? Is that asset a T-bill? Or is it commercial paper? Whatever it is, it's still basically that asset. That's what you've tokenized. Of course, you can do things differently and, and still call it a stablecoin. 
And I think that's what's happened a lot. So in the case of Tether, for instance, they are they are a bank, right? They have not just T-bills, they have long bonds, they have gold, they have uh, loans, they have commercial paper, they have uh, deposits of all kinds. So they're not just um, uh, totaling T-bills. They didn't just tokenize a T-bill. They've tokenized a liability of Tether and they hold a bunch of assets that fluctuate in value, but they said it's always be worth a dollar. That's called a bank. I think that's like that's a fine business model. Whether it, it should be unregulated is a different issue, but it's still essentially they've tokenized a dollar. Of course, you could also tokenize a 30-year bond and say it's worth $1. A 30-year bond fluctuates in price. It's not always worth $1. And you have interest rate risk, credit risk, and liquidity risk. And uh, you, know, you, you may have, in this case, it's a public liability. It's a public liability that fluctuates in price. What Paxos has done is we only tokenize T-bills. I think our average maturity is less than 30 days at the moment. So that never fluctuates in price. It's always worth a dollar. It's like a dollar in your pocket is like a dollar that Paxos has tokenized. And that's really important. We are trying to create a digital dollar, not a digital representation of a dollar uh, or you know whatever, you know, some version of it that isn't it. Right, we're not like there's no liability against Paxos here. We have taken a T bill, we have tokenized it, and or FDIC insured bank deposits. If I'm reading between the lines, you almost wouldn't call USDC or Tether a stablecoin. That's right. Those are not. It's not. It's not a digital dollar. It's not a dollar in your pocket. You can tokenize many things. And by the way, that's what Terra did. They tokenized their basically unbacked liabilities. Right. I mean, that's what it was. You know, and they said it was worth a dollar. By the way, it's not a dollar. It's whatever worth whatever someone paid for it. And so someone could say it's worth a dollar. They could say it's worth zero. And when they said it was worth zero, it was worth zero. Right. Enough people yeah. say it's worth zero, zero. Enough people say Paxos's dollar is worth zero. They're wrong because everyone will buy it up and come to Paxos and we'll just sell the T-bills and give you a dollar. It's always worth a dollar. And what's more important is we have a primary regulator, the New York Department of Financial Services. And they oversee our token and what can be held in it. Plus, they oversee the trust company to make sure all the assets are held, bankruptcy remote, fully segregated, Paxos fails, you have your dollar. And so I just, I don't think, it's not meant to be a sexy business. It's meant to be about financial innovation. Yeah. But someone like USDC, to push, to, to try to defend them for a second, like they do, they're mostly cash and cash equivalents. I think they've got some Yankees. They've got some, T, I think some treasuries in there, maybe like 5%. I, I don't actually know these numbers. So someone should actually cite me on this or fact check, but like they've got maybe 10% like corporate bonds, commercial paper, whatever it may be, but they are mostly cash. No. Yeah. I mean, I think it fluctuates around the idea. Yeah. The point is they don't have a prime, they don't have a primary regulator so they can change the reserves as they, when they want. You know what I mean? Like any given month, any given day, they could say tomorrow, I want to change the reserves. We can't because we have a primary regulator that tells us this is all we can have and they oversee it. Is, is this a risk to the system? Because I know, so you guys have two of the biggest stable coins out there, but at the end of the day, USDT and USDC are the two largest. Is that yeah. a risk to the system? It is a risk to the system um, because you're accepting a dollar as a dollar, but it's not always guaranteed to be a dollar. In the case of Paxos, it will always be a dollar. And I don't think there's anything wrong with tokenizing other things. So I don't want to make that clear. It's just wrong if you say it's something that it's not. Yeah. Right? And so when you're not clear about it, when you say this is a dollar stable coin, but it is only backed by another token that also has no value, like Luna did, you have a that is not a stable coin. And so I understand this concept of trying to want to make it as decentralized as possible, but this is actually the story of banking for the last 200 plus years. 
which is you give a bank money, they give you to give you a dollar back, they go put it in all kinds of different stuff, right? And that's why you have a bank and that's why you have regulatory uh, rules and you have capital requirements because, you know, plus the fiat nature of it. But with, you know, but if you only had, you know, $1 and you only invested it in USD bills and that's all you ever did, you're not taking any risk at all. All you've done is actually transform it in so that it can now be in a blockchain. And that's yeah. the exciting thing to me is that you now have dollars on a blockchain. Isn't that enough? You have financial innovation, not financial instability. And you can now bring people into the financial system that you couldn't before because anyone can hold a dollar with their wallet and it's a real dollar. That's what they want. Yeah. You guys have this amazing white label business, Charles. So the stable coin, like uh, Binance works with you guys on the like stable coin as a service. I'm pretty sure PayPal, I might be wrong here, but PayPal works with you guys on a lot of their like backend crypto. You guys have this like crypto um, uh, brokerage as a service, right? So if any fintech platform wants to enable crypto trading, they can go to Paxos and you guys will help them spin that up. Is the holy grail here for you guys, the US government? U.S. government wants to create a CBDC and Paxos powers that? Is that the holy grail? Well, first of all, we'd always uh, work with the government uh, to help them be able to bring innovation into the financial system as they thought was appropriate. Um, but for us, that's not necessarily the holy grail. Um, if I describe what we're trying to do, it's to replatform all the assets in the financial system. There's $700 trillion of them or whatever the current... Uh, market stocks, value bonds, now. real estate, yeah, art, exactly. gold, everything. Yeah. And, and everything. And, and, you know, why was it important to tokenize dollars? Because that's the, frankly, that's the lifeblood of the entire financial system globally. And if you didn't have a dollar that could move on a blockchain, you can't have other assets move on a blockchain um, very effectively or at all. Um, and, uh, and, and that's what you see right now. I mean, essentially, aside from, I think, NFTs trading against ETH, everything basically still trades against really dollars. Um, and that's where all the liquidity is. So you need to have dollars done uh, kind of upgraded in this way. Is a stable coin that we have today or anyone else have today in the market capable of running a, an economy uh, or, you know, kind of with the global financial system? Absolutely not. There's not enough privacy in it. There's zero privacy. There's only kind of anonymity. There's no way you could have that much information leakage between different businesses. Like they would be worried what their competitors could see and money movements and money flows. So I think we're very far from having product market fit for an economy-wide stablecoin. And um, it's going to take a lot of iterations over time. Certainly what we've done here is really interesting, but uh, at whatever it is, 150 or 180 billion dollars, it's basically nothing. There's 60 trillion dollars of money of zero maturity of just dollars. Um, we're at just the very, very, very beginning of trying to understand this, and so I think that maybe eventually the Fed will want to issue. But my suspicion is that the amount of iteration that needs to happen between now and stabilization of product market fit uh, at a society-wide scale, we're very far from that. Right. Do we, do we ever get there, though? Because if you look at something like, um, who's a big company? Apple, right? Apple's never going to put their, is going to make their supply chain orders. for They're not, they're not going to make those purchases on a public blockchain. Uh, so do we ever really use, like these, do, do massive like B2B transactions ever really take place on a blockchain outside of financial services? Well, certainly big wholesale movements of dollars might be the last thing to move onto a public blockchain. But that was really what I was trying to get at a little bit, um, that 
we don't have product market fit for how you yeah. run an economy-wide stablecoin on a public chain because there's too much information leakage from a privacy perspective. There are ways to um, uh, really fix the privacy around, like, say, maybe using zero-knowledge proofs or you know, creating certain types of shards on certain chains. There's lots of interesting solutions, by the way. They're going to need to be tried out. And I think you know, you'll get to a certain size and scale and then the last ones that come on are always the biggest players because they have the most to lose and they have the most amount of volume to put through. They, they, they are going to wait. You always want to start with these early adopter communities. That's the exciting thing about crypto is this is like it's an early adopter community, even though it's this big. It's still very um, small um, in the scheme of uh, the whole economy and the whole financial system. So could I imagine a day where all movements are going through a public blockchain? I, I expect that's what will happen. I would be surprised if... Now, there's many different ways of doing that private or public blockchain, including having privacy-enhancing uh, aspects to it. Um, so I don't think the way it's done now on a public blockchain will ever involve Apple moving money to those other suppliers. But that's a lot different from will they ever do it. What, what happened? So, okay, so $700 trillion of global assets, gold, stocks, bonds, currencies, commodities, real estate, art. What happens when all of that settles on a blockchain? And it, it sounds like this future maybe for you is... 5, 10, 15, it's far out in the future, but what are the implications of that happening? Like what unlocks basically in the economy and in the markets? Well, I think the interesting thing of, of, of kind of peering that far into the future is you don't have to um, use uh, an imagination that is completely, um, uh, uh, I don't know what to call it, sci-fi, uh, yeah. because we've already seen it. It's called DeFi. We've seen yeah. what the future looks like. Um, you know, the the advantage of having an unregulated crypto ecosystem has been that the Darwinian nature of uh, ideas and money that are tied uh, to instantaneous movement um, has been apparent. You've innovated so unbelievably fast. Now, we've also seen the downsides like Terra, but you've seen the upsides, which is we're creating new financial products and new ways of doing things that no one even conceived of five years ago. It's amazing. Um, and also, like, you know, there's also been a lot of uh, over-exuberance and things have gotten out of hand in certain places. But let's set that aside for a second. The fact is, could you imagine a world where you had every asset that's now moving on a blockchain that you could have in your wallet that goes with you wherever you want, that you wouldn't be able to have global pools of liquidity for lending, for borrowing, for trading, for staking, for whatever it might be, uh, for sending and receiving, for payments? Um, so that everyone can be in the financial system simply because they have the wallet on their phone. So you can, the, the basically the cost of bringing someone to the financial system dramatically falls. The access to products dramatically increases. And it doesn't matter who you are or where you live, you have an asset, say you have a Bitcoin, I don't know, you could pick anything. Um, but you create a global market to be able to borrow against it, to lend against it, to do whatever against it. It doesn't matter who you are, it's just code. Um, that is so many positive things about creating financial inclusion, uh, about bringing unbanked and underbanked people, not just in the U.S. where it's 20 or 25 percent of adults are unbanked and underbanked, but globally. Maybe there's only a couple billion um, people who have bank accounts that look anything like what you would say uh, that is in the U.S. Um, I know the numbers are supposedly higher, but it's really not. Yeah. It's unbelievable how hard it is for people to be able to um, get into the financial system and be able to be a participant in it. And the costs are very high uh, if you're not. You know, it's a huge amount. You pay far more fees 
to the uh, as a low income person than you do as uh, someone who has higher balances. Uh, there's reasons for that, whatever weight of history. But that can all be shifted if everything was sitting in a blockchain. Now that's not a panacea. The blockchain is a tool. Crypto is a tool. Um, it's uh, it has to be used in the right way. Used in the wrong way, you get Terra. Used in the right way, and you can change uh, access and inclusion and um, availability uh, fundamentally. Yeah, we've seen some of the best projects and use cases of crypto built in these bear markets, right? 2013, you had Coinbase. 2015, you had ETH. 2018, 2019, you had DeFi and NFTs really got created with OpenSea and Uniswap and Aave and Compound. What are you, what feels obvious to you right now going into this bear market of things or projects or companies that will emerge out of this bear market? Like, what are you excited about? What feels obvious to you that maybe doesn't feel obvious to other folks? I think that it, it really is going to be around uh, all the creator economy that's been brought in um, into into the crypto ecosystem, including uh, from gaming to music to wherever it is. To me, that's actually the sign that this is um, really making an impact because it's not just about speculative activities. It's around um, bringing the end user um, uh, closer together with whoever is the kind of the issuer. And by the way, that could be a company. It could be a musician. It could be an artist. That's the whole point is that you now are able to um, move, uh, remove a lot of distribution uh, agents that are in the middle. And the more you can show that, that is, to me, um, an indication that, you know, this is really living up to its promise, which is that you're going to end up having a fundamentally more open system that doesn't require intermediaries. You might use them, but doesn't require that. So if you look at Bitcoin today, I think it's 60 or 65% of Bitcoin is held in custodial wallets believe it or not. And maybe that's up from 10 or 15%, you know, whatever it was five years ago, uh, more or less. Um, that's the interesting thing is that people are using, choosing to use intermediaries. No one's required to uh, because they have to compete in an open system and they're producing great products that people want. And that's what you want. You want open systems that can bring people closer together and you can use an intermediary or not use one uh, depending on if they produce great products for you, but not because they have some embedded effect, network effect that locks you in like you have in Web 2.0 today. Yeah. Last question here. I have heard you say, I think it was from 20, 2010 or 2011, maybe 2012, that you saw Bitcoin as a call option. And that's really what it was in your mind. Is there a similar, uh, you know, 10 years later, is there a similar call option in crypto today? Um, by the way, I th that was kind of the way I thought about it because when you're at like, you know, uh, pennies or even just dollars. When was uh, that, 2010, like, okay. 2011? <laughs> yeah, it's 2010, yeah, May of 2010, we started like really getting into it, April or May. Um, you know, it's very, it was, I don't know, three cents. So yeah, I mean, you know, kind of a call option because, you know, what's gonna, it's going to go to zero. Um, so, you know, uh, I don't know if there's anything that's quite structured like that. That was a truly very unusual situation. And I know people always look for what is that next you know, three everyone's cent chasing, call option. Yeah, everyone's chasing the next. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, everyone's looking for it. And, um, you know, what I think is is really the next call option is people taking advantage of this new ecosystem to build businesses, to, you know, really build the fundamentals that are going to change things. Um, you know, it's, it's very unusual to find assets that can go up, I don't know, whatever it is, uh, 10,000 or hundred thousand times. Uh, that's just to me, like, uh, that, that's always so hard to wrap your head around that that can exist out there and, and look for it because generally the market is, 
not providing those types of opportunities. But what you can do is know whatever you're passionate about, you now have an opportunity to turn that, uh, think about it through a Web3 perspective and go build that type of business. That's what I think is the most exciting thing that's coming out now is all these different businesses, all these different ways of bringing people together. Yeah. Charles, this has been an absolute pleasure. I know you have a client called to jump on. I don't want to make you late. I would encourage folks uh, to go check out Paxos.com. I am pretty sure you're one of the only folks in crypto who does not have a Twitter unless I just couldn't find it. So um, <laughs> I think it's very, it's well hidden. <laughs> okay, good, good. Yeah, nice and not account. Anyways, my friend, uh, be well. This was great. And uh, I will talk to you soon. All right. Thanks a lot. Great to be on. Yeah.